are listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. Amen. Well, as you have a seat, uh, let me say good morning. I'm glad you're here. It's good to see you. Um, uh, We have been working through uh, the gospel according to Matthew, uh, and it's been a little while since we've been in that, but if you have your Bible, you can turn there, Matthew chapter 21. If you're a guest, like I said, we've been working through this gospel. We made it to chapter 21, which means we've been doing this since November of 21. Uh, and we're going to, Lord willing, finish this sermon series uh, around Easter. Uh, but we've been calling this sermon series All Authority because that is Matthew's point as he writes this book. Um, he writes this book, this gospel, to make abundantly clear that Jesus is the long-awaited Savior, Messiah, and King. This is why he starts his gospel with a genealogy. I mentioned this before in this series, but when we read Matthew 1, at least the first half of it, we think of it like a Netflix series, right? You skip the intro. You've heard the office jingle enough, all right? Get me to the good stuff. Um, But to Matthew's original audience who were entirely Jewish, this list of names would have been incredibly significant to them. Matthew is saying in this that Jesus is the Christ. Matthew 1, verse 1, he says, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Again, he's saying Jesus is the Christ. That word Christ means it's his title. It's not his last name. It means he's the Messiah, the promised, long-awaited king that God made a promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 that one day I'm going to bless the entire nations through you. Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. That's what Matthew's saying. He's saying that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise that God makes to David in 2 Samuel 7, that one day, David, a king is gonna come from you. He's gonna rule and reign forever. And Matthew says, that's who Jesus is. Uh, When Matthew says that Jesus is the Christ, he's saying that he is the one with all authority who has come to rescue and redeem the people of God once and for all. And so, where we left off back in November before our Advent series We left off with what's called the triumphal entry, right? This begins Jesus' final week of his earthly life and his ministry. The last few days the Lord Jesus lived on earth before he died is where we're starting. King Jesus, on Palm Sunday, he rides into the city of Jerusalem, um, and he rides in not like you would expect a king to ride in, not on a war horse, surrounded by armies and all these people. He rides in on a donkey's colt. Uh, the same way the prophet Zechariah said the Messiah would come into the city 750 years before that. Again, Matthew's point is that Jesus is the Savior King. He's not just a king. He is the king. He is the one with all authority. This is how uh, Matthew begins his gospel. It's how he ends his gospel. With the resurrected Jesus talking to his disciples, he commissions them to go and make disciples of all nations. Look at this, Matthew 28 All authority, he says, in heaven and on earth has been given to me, go therefore. You know what this word in the original language means? This word all? It means all. Jesus is saying that everything that is, everything that has been, everything that will ever be exists completely under his sovereign control. So, since that's who I am, the one with all authority, he says, go. And and this is... As long as I've thought about this verse, I've always thought about it as like Jesus kind of encouraging us to do what seems impossible, to go make disciples of all nations, right? Like he's saying, hey, I have all authority, so that's the power that I want you to go in, and he's trying to encourage or empower us to do that, and 
I think that's partly true, but when I was considering this verse this week, it struck me a little bit different. Um, The resurrected Jesus says to his disciples, and we can't miss that part, this guy was dead, and now he's alive. The one who has all authority, even power over sin and death, is talking to his disciples. He says, everything is under my authority, including you, so go. That's different, right? That's not him just encouraging us to do something difficult. He's saying, I'm telling you to go, so go. It's like in a much smaller scale when I tell my kids to do something they don't wanna do. Say, hey, I need you to go do fill in the blank. And what do they say, why? What do I tell them? Because I said so, all right? Because I told you to. Because I'm the one in control in this moment and because I said it, go. That's what's happening here. Again, on a much smaller scale, Jesus is the one with all authority. Colossians 1 says, he is the one who all things were created for. The one who all things, more than that, were created by. He's the one who Hebrews 1 says, upholds the universe with the words of his power. Doesn't even use his hands. Doesn't need the strength of his legs or his back to hold up the universe. He just does it. The universe works because Jesus allows it to work. He is the king of kings, and since that is who he is, he alone deserves our allegiance and our worship. But not only does Jesus say that he's been given all authority in heaven on earth, in John 10, he says, I am the good shepherd, which means that as followers of Jesus, we don't begrudgingly offer our worship and allegiance to a tyrant king. We are invited by the God of the universe into a life of real and lasting joy. This is what he's calling us to. And so I want to read our text for today, but before we do that, I want to ask you this. How long has it been since you have considered that this is who Jesus is? That he's the one with all authority? If you were to think about your life the past few days, weeks, years even, how much of your time is spent with any sort of awareness that Jesus is the one with all authority? A few days, sorry, a few moments each day, few moments each week, maybe, if you make it to a gathering like this on Sunday. And here's the thing. I think in our culture, it is surprisingly easy to live a life that looks Christian on the outside that is entirely void of Christ on the inside. To our shame. It is surprisingly easy to be immersed in Christian culture and to even participate in Christian practice. You know what I mean when I say that, Christian practice? Like doing things that Christians do, go to church, give some money, be good, whatever. Right, you're in a community group. It's it's surprisingly easy to be immersed in Christian culture and to even participate in Christian practice, but at the same time lack the fruit that Jesus says is the actual evidence that we're following him with our lives. And the reason why I wanna start with that is because in our text this morning, Jesus is gonna give us a warning toward that very way of living. Happy New Year, right? He's gonna give us a warning about the dangers of a life that has the form of religion but doesn't bother to involve the one who should be the focus of this religion. And we're gonna cover two sections of scripture today. We're gonna start in verse 12, chapter 21. Go down through verse 22, and again, these two sections, if you were just reading them on your own, they would seem unrelated, like two separate stories that just happened over the course of Jesus' last week on earth before he was resurrected. But what I want you to see today is that these two stories are deeply connected. So let me read the first one, and then we'll come back and talk about it, starting in verse 12. It says, and Jesus 
entered the temple and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said, yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. So in order to understand what's happening here, we need to remember the context of this story, right? Final week, Jesus' life just entered the city on Palm Sunday, which is the beginning of Passover. And Passover uh, was an annual event where the Jewish people would come from all over the region to the city of Jerusalem, to the temple, to remember and celebrate what their God had done for them in Egypt through the Exodus. That's what Passover was. So every year, from all over 10, 20, 30, sometimes hundreds of miles away, Jews would come to participate in this feast. Some scholars say, uh, estimate that during this week of Passover, uh, it could be as much as uh, hundreds of thousands of extra people would be in the city. So Savannah, we're a city where we have some tourism. What's our biggest event for tourism? St. Patrick's Day, right. How many, you know how many people come St. Patrick's Day? Like 30 to 50,000, right? A million, (laughs) no. It feels like it. But it's 30 to 50,000. This is 10 times that, which means this city is packed, right? It's difficult to find a place to stay, to find a place to eat. It's difficult to even get around. This is the context of what we just read. And what's interesting is the way Matthew tells this story, it seems like the first thing Jesus does when he comes into the city on a donkey's colt on Palm Sunday, it seems like the first thing he does is goes right in the temple and he starts flipping tables. That's what it seems like. But Mark gives us more detail. And he, Mark actually says that what we just read takes place the next morning. Mark 11, verse 11, this is right after the triumphal entry. He entered Jerusalem, went to the temple, and when he looked around at everything, that's a really important detail, we're gonna come back to that. When he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany, which is a city about two miles away where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus live. You know, the guy Jesus raised from the dead, all authority. He liked to stay there. So he went back to Bethany with the twelve. And then verse 12 says, the next morning they leave Bethany, they come back into the city, and that is when it all goes down in the temple. This is an important detail again, we'll come back to it, but for now, it's not Sunday evening, it's Monday morning. And this is where verse 12 happens. Monday morning, Jesus entered the temple, he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Jesus was angry. Does that seem inconsistent? To any of you about the way we like to think about Jesus or the way we tend to think about him? Yeah, because we think about Jesus, he's patient, he's kind, right? He's not angry and violent. That's Old Testament God. That's all the anger and violence. That's out of the way. This is Jesus. This is New Testament, right? But then we read passages like this and we don't know what to do with it. So the first question that we have to answer in this text is why would Jesus do this? Why would he do this? Why would he flip tables? Why does he get angry? What provokes him in his spirit to do what what we just read? And to understand that, we have to understand what the temple was. The temple, to the Jewish people, meant everything, right? It was the focal point of the entire city of Jerusalem, but more than that, the idea of the temple is a theme in the Bible from beginning to end. The temple is simply where God would come to be with his people and where people could come to be with 
their God. That's simply what the temple is. At least that's what it was supposed to be. And the temple in Jerusalem, when Jesus was alive, was built by a man named Herod, King Herod, right? This is the second temple. The first one was destroyed before Israel went to exile in Babylon. But here's a picture of what it looked like. This isn't the actual picture because that building doesn't exist anymore. Um, but this is a representation of what it looked like. And just look, that, look at that, keep it in your mind. And then I wanna read this quote from this commentary by a guy named Robert Stein so you can kind of understand the scene here. The scene of this incident is the temple of Jerusalem. One of the most magnificent structures of the world in that day. As a total complex, it was in fact the largest site in the ancient world. The total temple platform was about 35 acres. The perimeter of the temple contained a covered portico built of huge columns that were 35 feet high, whose base was so large that it took three men joining hands to encircle one. It was within this portico that the events of the chapter took place. The largest area of the temple in which the portico was located was called the Court of the Gentiles. So go back to that picture. Why don't you look at this? This isn't perfect, right? But this is a helpful way to think about it, like a bullseye or concentric circles. So in the middle, the middle of the bullseye, um, is the temple building itself. And then from there, you kind of have these four different courts or four different distinct divisions. Um, And the outermost and the largest, the one that you can see there with all that open space is what's called the court of the Gentiles. This was the only place on the temple grounds where anyone who was not Jewish could go. This was the only place that was set aside so that even Gentiles could approach God. And it's in this court of the Gentiles where verse 12 takes place, where it says that Jesus walks into that space and he drove out all who bought and sold in the temple. Now, the root of this word drove out is important. It means to throw, right? So the Bible just said that Jesus threw them out of the temple. This wasn't a, hey guys, I think it's maybe time for you to leave, right? He threw them out of the temple. A couple weeks ago, we had our Christmas Eve gatherings. Three of them, we were here almost all day. Our staff was, at least. In the last gathering, people were just lingering. I mean, it's Christmas Eve. It's like seven o'clock. We got stuff to do, right? We got babies to bathe, babies to feed, babies to get in bed, because you know who's coming. We got, you know, we got to figure some things out. So we started giving them hints, flash the lights. Time for you to go. Start cleaning up next to them. Excuse me, excuse me. Sorry, don't bother me. Uh, you know, don't, don't mind me, excuse me. That's not what was happening here. The Bible says Jesus drove them out of the temple, literally threw them out. He kicked them out of the temple, and it goes on to say he overturned the tables of the money changers. Right? What's that talking about? Well, remember, it's Passover. Hundreds of thousands of Jews had come to worship and offer their sacrifices to God. And, and making those trips way more difficult is traveling with an animal. Okay? You ever traveled on foot for 10 dozens of miles? Probably not. You ever traveled dozens of miles with an animal? I haven't, but I got a bunch of toddlers. I think it's probably the same. It's not easy, okay? Come on, goat, you know? It's harder. It slows you down. So instead of bringing their offering with them from home, what they would do is most people would purchase an animal when they got there. In addition to that, to the sacrifices and the animals that had to be there, every Jewish male was required to pay what was called the temple tax. If you didn't live in Jerusalem, you paid it when you came for the Passover feast. Um, This is the same thing if you remember back in our series in chapter 17 when the tax collectors come to Jesus and they they say to Peter, does your teacher not pay the temple tax? And Peter's like, yeah, of course. And so he goes and tells Jesus, hey, what's the deal with the tax? Uh, And Jesus says, I'll tell you what, go catch a fish, pull the first one up, you'll find in its mouth a shekel and use that shekel to go pay our temple tax. That's what Jesus is talking about. Again, he's the one with all authority, right? 
Jewish law said that only certain currencies could be used to pay this temple tax. So the money changers were basically like uh, exchange booths that you would see in an airport. Anyone ever seen these? You ever exchange your money there? Don't. <laughs> Why? Because you get a horrible rate. You get a horrible rate of return, exchange rate at the airport compared to outside of it. How about this? You ever eaten a meal at an airport? Like, and the crazy thing when you're on an airplane, like, you'll eat a piece of pizza at 6 in the morning. You just don't know what time it is. You know what I mean? Um, but say you, you want a Chick- Chick-fil-A sandwich and you're in an airport. It's normally seven fifty. That thing's going to be at least seventeen fifty. And, and I haven't been to an airport in a while with inflation. It might be twenty seven fifty by now. Who knows? But why? Why is it more expensive? Because they got you. Right? That's what's happening in the temple. The religious leaders had seen an opportunity for profit, and they were exploiting people who had come to worship God. I think there's two keys to understanding why this provoked Jesus so much to do what he did. The first one, look at verse 12. What is the only animal that the scriptures mention in verse 12? It's the last word in the verse, pigeons, right, pigeons. Um, this word, pigeons, it's the same Greek word for doves. Like when Jesus says, be wise as serpents, innocent as doves, it's the same Greek word, which is unfortunate for the doves, if we can be honest. Because when you think pigeons, you go, ooh, gross. But then when you think doves, you're like, oh, cute. Yeah. It's like the difference between squirrels and rats. It's like essentially the same creature. One has a fluffy tail, but when you think rats, you're like, ugh, but squirrels are cute for some reason. This, it was a pointless joke, by the way. This key, this is key to understanding why what Jesus says is happening in the, what he sees happening in the temple is provokes him in the spirit so much because doves were the animal sacrifice for people who couldn't afford a lamb. Doves were the sacrifice of the poor. And it is not, church, by accident that the only animal sacrifice the Bible specifically mentions is the offering of the poor. Mark mentions the same thing. This is the gospel writers drawing our attention to what provokes Jesus to do what he does, right? Um, The Bible says Jesus flipped the seats of the people who sold pigeons specifically because they were taking advantage of the poor. I want you to see the picture here, this picture of the scene. This is the court of the Gentiles, supposed to be a place of reverence and worship, and you have what's, what's now become uh, a flea market, so to speak. Booths, shopping booths everywhere. It's a market. If you've ever been to in, like in a foreign country, that's kind of the idea. This huge outdoor mall has been set up in the temple, in the court of Gentiles, people everywhere, animals everywhere. It's loud. It stinks. Money changing hands like crazy. And one man, Jesus, he walks in and he shuts the whole thing down drives them out of the temple, flipping over tables. I'm sure there's money falling all over the floor. People are diving on it. Trying to, it's just chaos. And on top of that, Mark 11, verse 16 says this, Jesus, he wouldn't allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Here's what that means. Remember, the temple grounds spanned almost 35 acres, and where the temple was positioned in the city, it was like a, a, a cut through. So instead of walking all the way around that 35-foot high wall, they would cut through because it's just the court of the Gentiles, right? It became a shortcut. This is the casual nature of how people thought about the temple. Who cares that God says we shouldn't do this because it makes my life a little bit easier, makes my life a little less uncomfortable. I mean, I know God said that we shouldn't do this, but it makes me happier not to walk all the way around. And God would want me to be happy, right? Now, this is how, they, how casually they thought about God and his word. We would never do that, but that's what they did. Imagine the people thinking that this Monday were just like any other Monday. And they were just going on their way, just traveling the way they always did. And then here's Jesus from Nazareth who stops them and says, you're not coming through here. We're not doing this. 
And whose responsibility should it have been to shut this thing down? The religious leaders, right? The, the scribes and the Pharisees. But what this text is showing us, church, is that they weren't just allowing this to happen. They were the ones driving it. And they didn't care because it was just the court of the Gentiles. Who cares if we prevent them from having access to God? Plus, we can profit from this quite a bit. And so once Jesus had everyone's attention, and I'm sure he did, verse 13 says, it is written. He basically says, this is what God says. This is why I'm doing what I'm doing, why I'm shutting this whole thing down, why you can't just casually walk through here, because it is written. He calls out the religious leaders, essentially says to the Bible experts in front of everyone, haven't you read the Bible? And he quotes from Isaiah 56, verse 13. He says, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. So this, my house shall be called a house of prayer is a quote from Isaiah 56. And this is the other key to understanding why Jesus did what he did. Not just because of what he quotes, but also because of what he doesn't quote. Let me show you what I mean. Look at Isaiah 56, verse seven, it'll be on the screen. These I will bring to my holy mountain. I make them joyful in my house of prayer. Skip to the end. For my house shall be called a house of prayer. That's what we just read. There's another piece there. For what? For all peoples. That word peoples is translated nations or even most of the time in the Bible, Gentiles. Matthew leaves that part out. Right? This is, again, the other key to understanding what's happening here. In Mark's gospel, he includes that for all peoples. Because Mark's gospel were not Jewish. They wouldn't have known the verse. But Matthew knows that his audience knows this verse, and so he leaves it out to make his point. Right? Here, here's, here's an example. If I were to write a letter to a group of Americans and foreigners at the same time, and I ended the letter this way, land of the free and home, the foreigners would go, okay. So land of the free, and it's their home, I guess. I don't know. But what would you be thinking? You left part out. It is the land of the free, and it is our home, but, but we're brave, man. This is the home of the brave. So Matthew does the exact same thing. They would know that verse. They would know Jesus was quoting, quoting Isaiah 56, saying that my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations, and he leaves it out to draw their attention that this is what provoked Jesus to flip tables in the temple. Because the sacred space of the temple had been trivialized. It had been transformed into a flea market and a shortcut, and it was no longer fulfilling its divine purpose to be a place for all people, Jew and Gentile, to encounter God, to come to the one true God and find forgiveness for their sin. But instead, what was happening? The people on the fringes, the poor and the outsider were being prevented access from God. Right? That's what's happening here. They were seen as commodities to be used and opportunities to be profited from. And when Jesus sees this, he is horrified. He's provoked in his spirit. He's filled with righteous anger. Now that word, we can, we can grab onto that. Sometimes we go, ooh, righteous anger. That's what I got. Right? Start feeling justified. In our, maybe it was okay that I flipped that guy off in traffic the other day. Maybe it was okay that I cursed out my neighbor because he didn't pick up his dog's poop in my yard like I told him. Like, and I may be wrong, I know you feel right in that moment, but my guess is that's not righteous anger, okay? Remember what we read earlier in Mark 11, Jesus had been to the temple on Palm Sunday and he went in there and he what? He looked around at everything, meaning he had seen what was happening in the temple. 
He saw the casual nature that people were treating God's, uh, God's house. He saw the way the religious leaders were profiting from the marginalized and the people on the fringes. He saw it, but he said it was late. So he went back to Bethany. And he came back the next morning in prime time to do what he did, which means this wasn't a spontaneous like outburst, right? That's what this shows us. This wasn't just something that Jesus, you know, oh my, I wish I wouldn't have done that, and he regretted it later. No, his actions and attitude were entirely appropriate. This was a passionate display of zeal for God's honor. It was a, an appropriate regard for the, the purpose of God's temple. Jesus was angry. And again, this, this may seem inconsistent with how we like to think about Jesus, but without this church, without this what, who the Bible says Jesus is, then we don't have Jesus at all. We have a thin, weak version of Jesus that allows us to disregard the holiness of God and do whatever we want to do as long as it makes our lives a little less uncomfortable or puts a, a few more dollars in our pockets, right? But remember, Matthew's original audience was Jewish, which means they had Jewish expectations for what the Messiah would be like and, and what he would come to do. And up to this point, if... if you were a Jew in the first century reading Matthew's gospel. You, this was nothing like what you expected the Messiah to be. And then you get to chapter 21 and you go, wait a minute, this guy's flipping tail. This is the leader that we've been looking for. Maybe he is the one, but only now he's not doing anything like they thought he would. Let me read you this quote from a commentator, James Edwards. He says, the Messiah was popularly expected to purge Jerusalem and the temple of Gentiles, aliens, and foreigners. Jesus' action is clearly the reverse he doesn't clear the temple of Gentiles. He clears the temple instead for the Gentiles. In this, Jesus reveals that he is a very different type of Messiah epitomized in Jewish expectation. The temple is not the sole property of Israel, but a witness to the nations. That's what it was supposed to be. Not just for Israel. The temple was supposed to be a place where God's presence would dwell with his people. Again, the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 and be a blessing to the nations. That's what it was supposed to be, but it wasn't. And this is why Jesus does what he does. When people who are supposed to be God's representatives in the world think about him so casually that they will spin reverence and worship of God and flip it into an opportunity to, for personal gain and profit, Jesus has no place for that. Look what happens next, verse 14. The blind, the lame come to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant, right? Who was indignant? The religious leaders. And that shouldn't surprise us because he just called them out publicly, you know? Hey, Bible experts, you ever read your Bible? Looks like you have. Not to mention he shut down their side hustle. So it shouldn't be surprising that they are indignant. Um, and, and church, this is a tension that we're gonna be talking about for the next several weeks. This is actually the thing, the cleansing of the temple that ends up getting Jesus killed. So they come to him, look at verse 16, and they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And he's talking about that Hosanna, son of David. Hosanna means save us now. Son of David means you're the king that God promised to David in 2 Samuel 7. He's saying, do you hear what they're saying about you? They're saying that you're the Messiah. They're saying that you're the king. Do you hear what they're saying? What's Jesus say? Yes. Jesus doubles down. Basically, the, the religious leaders were expecting, they're calling you the Messiah. Should we correct them or do you want to? Jesus goes, no, 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 nobody. 
That's who I am. But more than that, and then he quotes Psalm 8, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise, which is a psalm of worship to Yahweh. So he doubles down. He says, not only am I the Messiah and the King, the promised one from David, I am God. I'm Yahweh. This is who I am. Right? Verse 17 says, and leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. And in the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. Again, I need to point out the way that Matthew tells this story is different than the way that Mark tells it. I'll need you reading this. Actually, please read your Bible this afternoon and read Mark and see the inconsistencies. And I don't need you having questions to go and say, hey, is, is the Bible not trustworthy? Why do they not match this up? The, the thing that's happening here is the same story, two different perspectives. Matthew tells it from one perspective. Mark tells it from another perspective. Same exact story. Mark gives us more chronological detail. Matthew just says, this happened. The facts are the same, but the, the time stamps essentially will lead you to have some questions. Basically, Mark takes what we're about to read about a fig tree. He splits it into two, and he shoves the temple part in between it. And, Mark, and Matthew just says, temple, fig tree. Same exact story told from two different perspectives. What I need you to see, though, not two random events that happen in Jesus' life. These are intimately connected, right? That's what we need to see here. Look at verse 18 again. In the morning, so the, the day after he uh, flipped in the temple, he was returning to the city and he became hungry and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, that just means the side of the road, he went to it, found nothing on it, but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. The question that we have here is the same as the one with the temples. Why would he do this? What's Jesus got against figs, right? Seems harsh, it seems inconsistent and unloving with who we think about Jesus to be. He's kind, he's gracious, he's patient, he's loving. That's who he is, right? Was he just hangry? <laughs> Says he was hungry, like if I had all authority in heaven on earth, I might do something like this. You really want a Chick-fil-A sandwich, you get real psyched up about it, you're asking everybody, what you want, I'll get you something. You drive all the way there, you realize it's Sunday. What would you do? Curse you, Chick-fil-A. May no one ever eat from you again, right? That's what I would do. Is this what happened here? Is Jesus just flexing, right? So when we read this, the scene of the fig tree seems random, but there would have been light bulbs going off in the hearts and the minds of Jesus' disciples about how this connects to the temple. And we don't have time to go into it, but the reason why is because all throughout the Bible, and I could show you dozens of passages, all through the Bible, we, the people of God, are referred to as a tree or a vine tree or vine. Judges 9, Isaiah 3, Isaiah 5, Jeremiah 12, Jeremiah 17, Ezekiel 17, 19, Psalm 1, on and on and on we could go. The people of God referred to as a tree or a vine. We are the planting of God. They were and we are the planting of God that God might bear his fruit in us where he has us for the good of the world around us. That's the theme in the scriptures and why we're referred to as a tree or a vine. Verse 18 says he was hungry. He sees a fig tree that had leaves on it which meant that it had the appearance of being fruitful, right? So this tree had leaves, means it should have been fruitful, but when he got to it, there was none. And so why does he curse the tree? Because it was all leaves and no fruit. The tree was all leaves and no fruit. This is what connects the fig tree with what happened to the temple because the same thing was true about Israel. From the outside, from a distance, they had an appearance of fruitfulness. It's Passover, it's busy, the city's buzzing, the temple's full, there's all this activity, but when Jesus got close, he could see it was all leaves, no fruit. It's all religious pretense, right? They had the form of religion, 
but didn't bother to involve the one who should be the focus of religion. And what I want you to see here is the offense of the tree was not just that it was unfruitful. It was that, but it wasn't just that. It's also because it had the appearance of being fruitful, but wasn't. And this is what this has to do with us. Oftentimes we think what makes us a Christian is the things that we do for God. You're a Christian? Yeah, I go to church. You're a Christian? Yeah, I read my Bible. You're a Christian? Yeah, I'm in a community group. I'm in a Bible study. I'm, I have Christian friendships or whatever. We have this small group where we meet and share very vague prayer requests. And no one ever confesses sin or cries out in repentance or walks in authenticity, but we all just pretend to be fine. You know what Jesus would say about all of that? Leaves. It's just leaves. It's not bad. It's just not fruit. And there's another image of fig leaves in the Bible. Genesis 3. Adam and Eve in the garden. And the first time humanity experiences sin and the response or, or the consequence of sin, what are they, they're filled with guilt and shame. What do they do? They feel this impulse immediately to run and hide from God, to cover themselves. And, and what do they hide behind? Fig leaves. Jesus condemns the tree and the temple because they were all leaves and no sincere fruit. Here's the question I think God wants us to answer from this text today. And if I could just be honest, this is, this is not an easy sermon to preach, personally. The question I think God wants us to answer from this text today is, are we, as God's people, bearing good fruit? Are we bearing good fruit? Are there any tables in your life that Jesus needs to flip over? Are you, if you would consider yourself a follower of Jesus, are you bearing good fruit? Or are you just pushing out more leaves, adding on more Christian activity, pretending so that no one, so you, don't, you or no one else finds out what's going on inside your heart and your life but, but because you don't want to know what's there. Let me just keep doing more. Keep pushing out more leaves. Are you bearing good fruit? And again, church, this passage is a warning from Jesus about this way of living. He's warning us about this. What's the good fruit that we're talking about? I think the simplest answer is what we see in Galatians chapter five, verse 22. The apostle Paul says, the fruit of the spirit is. This means that when we follow Jesus, when we trust him to believe who the Bible says he is and trust him through faith, the spirit comes into us. This is what the spirit of God produces in the life of every believer. The fruit of the spirit, what God produces in us as we follow Jesus is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And that list, my friends, is why it makes this hard, this sermon very difficult for me to preach. Because when I think about my life, I go, am I gentle? Am I patient? I thought I was in 2010. I had no kids, no stress, things were good. I'm a patient man. Life presses you, life squeezes you, you see things that you didn't even know was there. I go, man, am I patient? Am I self-controlled? And this isn't nine different fruits that the Spirit produces in us. This is the, the fruit, singular, of the Spirit that comes up. These are the things, it's not an exhaustive list. This is Paul, the Apostle Paul saying this is the type of character that comes out of the life of the person who's planted their roots deep in the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are loved by God, not because they deserve it, but because of who he is and what he's accomplished for you. That love transforms us from the inside out. 
And when we plant our roots deep into that, what begins to come out of that person is love because our God is loving. What comes out of that person is patience because we have a God who is patient with us and gentleness and on and on. That's what he's saying, right? You can't be loving and lack kindness. It doesn't work that way. It's one fruit, one thing that comes up out of us. You can't have the lasting joy that God is inviting you into and lack self-control where you give in to every desire or momentary impulse that comes at you in your life. So the question, again, that I think God wants us to answer in this question or in this text is, are you known for this fruit? This type of fruit. Not leaves. Are you known for this fruit? Are we, is CBC known for this fruit? If so, praise God. Because if that's true, that means that God is working in us. If we're known for this fruit, and again, Jesus doesn't condemn the tree because it had a little bit of fruit. He condemns it because it had none, but it was pretending like it did. So if you got a little bit of fruit, praise God, that is God's spirit working in you to cultivate the type of character that should come out of those who trust Christ for salvation. That is a gift of God, the spirit's working in you. If that's you, here's how I'd encourage you. Hopefully you heard the sermon last week. If not, you should go listen to it. It was incredible. Um, The apostle Paul in Philippians chapter three says, Not that I have obtained this, saying I'm not there. But one thing I do, I press on to make Christ Jesus my own because he has made me his own. I press on to become more like Jesus, not so that he will love me, but because he loves me. So if you have fruit in your life, praise God, he's working in you, he's moving in you, keep going. That word press on means to chase after. With everything you have, you pursue Christ's likeness. If that's you, praise God. But if your answer to that question is no, are you bearing good fruit? If you can honestly say that there is no trajectory of growth in your life in these categories. And maybe for many of us, and this again, this is kind of where I've been this week if I sat in this text. As I think about my life the last few days, weeks, months, years, I go, am I more loving than I used to be? Am I more or less patient, more or less self-controlled? If, if that's you, if you would say that there is fruitlessness in me, pay attention to the warning of this passage. Pay attention to the warning of this passage. Do not, church, just keep pushing out more leaves, pretending that everything's fine. When you identify in your life the fruitlessness, the answer is not more Christian activity. Don't push out more leaves and pretend. What Jesus would say is, in Matthew three, is repent. Don't pretend, repent. Matthew three, verse eight, he says, bear fruit. Here's how you can be fruitful. Matthew three, quoting Jesus. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. The the pattern of the life of the Christian is continually coming to Christ. Bear fruit, he says, in keeping repentance with repentance, and, and if, if that is you, if you feel convicted this morning, and go, man, if I'm honest, I, I am not growing in the fruits of the Spirit. If I'm honest, I do see in me religious pretense, putting out leaves instead of being walking in Christian authenticity, the way that God would call me to. If that's you, that is God's kindness to you. Romans two says it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance because you know what he could do instead of convicting you this morning by the power of the spirit and drawing you to repentance? He could leave you on your own in your leaves and you go, I'm fine. Jesus could say, yeah, yeah, you can see how that works out for you. He doesn't do it. If God's convicting you this morning, this is his kindness to you. And if that's you, let me just encourage you this last way. Tell somebody. 
It's not on you to do enough and be enough to be fruitful the way that God's called you to. He's invited us to live this life together. This is fruit that's born in your life by the power of the Holy Spirit in the context of Christian community. Tell someone if you're struggling. I am not fruitful. I have been struggling in this area, in this area of self-control. Will you please pray for me? Tell somebody. Let's finish this up. Verse 20. I haven't preached in eight weeks. Can you tell? We're going long. It's the last service, though. We got a couple more verses. Here we go. Verse 20. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did this fig tree wither at once? I love this sentence, this verse, because it just encourages me about my own stupidity in life. These are men who have seen Lazarus raised from the dead. Saw Jesus walk on water, calm the storm. Who is this that even the wind and waves obey? And here we are in Holy Week, and a tree dies, and they go, how did this happen? <laughs> you know, this is the one with all authority in heaven and on earth. That's how it happened, all right? Look at verse 21. Jesus answers, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. So I don't know about you, but when I read that, I go, that feels like a hard turn. They go, how did this happen? And Jesus starts talking about faith and prayer, right? So what, what's happening here is Jesus is, is he's shifting the conversation from fruitlessness to faith. And more specifically, prayer. He's connecting those two things. The solution to fruitlessness, he's gonna say that in a second. Jesus is not saying that if you just have enough faith, then you can kill any tree you want. You can move any mountain you want. Right? That would make landscaping way easier. In Jesus' name, this grass is mowed, amen. This tree, trimmed, right? Spanish moss, gone. The name of Jesus. No, that's not what he's saying. This move mountains is a Hebrew euphemism and it's figurative language. It's figurative language to say that, uh, that you can do impossible things. That if you trust God and not yourself, then you will see God do things that you never thought possible. That's what he's talking about. Um, and what he's saying is, in response, this is crazy, in response to our failure and our fruitlessness, Jesus says the answer is not do better or try harder. If that were the case, then Christianity would be no different than any other religion. And many of you believe that, if you're honest. That if you're gonna be fruitful, if you're gonna be who God called you to be, then it's up to you to do enough, be enough. Gotta be loving. Gotta be patient with the kids. It's hard. That's what we believe. We, we grew up in churches, many of us, that, where the message was, God is good, you're not. Do better, we'll see you next Sunday. Right? But that, that isn't the good news of the gospel. What Jesus is saying is the answer to mine and your fruitlessness is faith. Not faith in what we can do and all the leaves we can push out and how impressive we can be, but faith in him. And church, the cursing of the fig tree shows us that Jesus wasn't just cleansing the temple. I know it says that in your Bible, Jesus cleanses the temple. That's not the inerrant, inspired word of God. This is showing us that he's not just cleansing the temple, he is moving the center point of access to God from the temple in Jerusalem to himself. That's what he's doing here. That's what the cursing of the fig tree shows us because here at the beginning of Holy Week, he curses a fig tree, he condemns Israel for its lack of fruit, but what Jesus has in mind is the end of Holy Week where Jesus himself would be cursed on a tree for our lack of fruitfulness. And church, that's our only hope. 
Our only hope to be what God has called us to be, our only hope to to move past our failure and fruitlessness is that the one who has the power to pronounce death on this fig tree is the same one who took on a tree our pronouncement of death at Calvary. That is our hope. Galatians 3 says this, Christ redeemed us. That means to be purchased out from underneath, to be bought back from underneath, he says, the curse, the curse of the law, which is do better, try harder. It's up to you to perform in order to earn God's love. Christ brought us out of that, here's how, by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. Here's why he did it. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Same word, peoples, nations so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And church, it is through our faith in Jesus that we live the fruitful lives that he's calling us to. Here's the point. If you're a Christian, the banner over your life is not look how strong I am and how much good I can do. If you're a Christian, the banner you wave over your life every moment of every day is not how good or strong you are, it's how good or strong he is. This is why he shifts the conversation to to prayer because we talk about faith Faith is hard to grab onto. Like if I would say, hey, do you have faith? You go, I don't know, I think. But if you say, but do you pray? It brings it out of the clouds and it puts it down into something you can hang on to. He shifts the conversation to prayer and we pray not to earn God's love because that would just be more leaves. We pray because we have a God who has all authority in heaven and on earth. We have a God who with just a few words can pronounce judgment on a tree, we have a God who with the same few words takes the judgment for our sin on a tree. And what's he say? Three words. It is finished. This is why we pray. According to Jesus' explanation, the clearest example of a fruitless tree, the clearest example of a fruitless life is a prayerless life. You wanna be fruitful? Pray. Not to earn God's love, but because the God of the universe has invited you into right relationship with him. The one with all authority in heaven and on earth says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You wanna be fruitful, you need to pray. We don't have to go to the temple to experience God's power. You don't even have to come here to experience God's power. We have the Holy Spirit of God with us and in us. The power of God is available to us. So we pray. It's a lot. Here's what I want you to take away from that. You ready? You checked out on me 20 minutes ago? Bring it back in. You do not have to pretend to be better than you are. You don't. Because... Jesus, the one with all authority, was condemned in your place so that you might bear fruit. But if you believe that, your faith in him ought to be growing in you fruits of character, the fruit of the spirit. Again, it's not always up. It's up and down and up and down and up and down, but you look back three, five, 10, 15 years of following faithfully, 20 years trusting Jesus, and you go, man, Look at what God has done. Never thought that was possible. If you believe it, your faith ought to be growing in you fruits of character. And one of the clearest evidences of fruit in the life of a believer of your faith is prayer. So if you would stand with me, I'm gonna pray for us. Then we're gonna respond 
to the Lord this morning in song. God, we thank you that you love us. I thank you that despite the fact that we do not deserve your grace and your mercy, your mercies are new for us every morning. Pray for the folks in this room, God, where they are convicted. Would you remind them that it isn't up to them to earn your love and approval. This is your kindness drawing them into the life that they want, a life of real and lasting joy. We need your help. I pray as we sing these songs with these lyrics Encourage our hearts. Allow us to worship you as you and you alone deserve. We thank you for Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Let's respond together.